Hello there, friends, and welcome back to yet another episode of The Encouraging Word. I feel like uh, we're going to be especially encouraging today, don't you, Stephen? Uh, yes, I think so. Yes. All right. <laughs> well, welcome back, friends. Uh, we are continuing on in a uh, series we've been in the midst of for some time now as we work our way through history and and investigate, kind of uh, get a peek into the life of some of the leaders of the Christian faith from uh, basically shortly after the writing of the, the New Testament and all the way on up through history. And we are uh, beginning to wind down that, that journey. We're going to come to you today with uh, four individuals who who were uh, especially influential in the, the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, and uh, I think primarily um, here in America, or each one had at least uh, influence here in America during their lifetime and continue to in some level uh, today. So uh, it's been a fun journey. We've uh, we've had a blast breaking these down. I, I know I've learned a lot. Uh, Stephen already knew all this, but yeah, um, but he still enjoyed kind of breaking <laughs> it down with you. And uh, we can't wait to get started. But before we, we do that, we want to take a moment to just uh, check in with you all through our fit segment, those things in Stephen and I's uh, lives that have been funny, interesting, or thought-provoking in, in recent weeks. And uh, Stephen, you want to kick things off for us? Yeah, I'll start off with, um, so our church does many programs. Um, we do lift, and we have a men's Bible study, and we have, what else do we have? What else do we have, Paul, here at the church? You, you do still work here, right, Steve? Oh, yeah, 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 <laughs> is, yeah that, is that the we problem? We have Crossroads, right? There and, you go, yeah. And uh, um, we have actually a lot of men or a lot of bible studies discipleship one and two and three and four that's four. that's correct alternating years yes <laughs> very go. good other studies as well there. ash wednesday studies and yeah a lot of stuff <laughs> ash <like> wednesday <laughs> studies yes wait, wait lent studies not ash wednesday wow studies. <laughs> i think you and i just need to sit down and peruse the website together right. maybe yeah. when we're done yeah. here steven if you're going to be a walking ambassador oh, for the church true. yeah i should know what we're what's going on <laughs> anyways but one of the things that we do do that really impacts our community and really reaches people within the community is upward and upward recently started two weeks ago and um it's been going really well we've had it actually sold out um or we did you say sold out or it yeah we had yeah, so many was, kids yeah. that we filled all the rosters of the teams and cheerleaders and so it's been really, really good um, outreach for the church um, using Upward. And, and it's a lot of fun to see the kids going out and learning basketball and having fun, being competitive. And um, my daughter is actually in it for the first time this year. So it's fun seeing her out on the court. Uh, we've had kind of a mixed time. The first time she went out there, she was a little overwhelmed and left the court crying. But, you know, we're, <laughs> we're working on that. She's going to get better can only get better from there yeah (laughs) right exactly i still have dreams of the WNBA for her so um (laughs) (laughs) those have not died yet uh but yeah it's it's been a lot of fun i help out with the concession stand paul does a lot of roughing and a lot of roughing right and a lot of yeah and a lot of (laughs) roughing and uh even though it it, it's an all-day activity and it i think it goes from end of january to march but um the benefits of it um, are, are really through the roof. So that's what's going on right now. So that's my fit segment. All right. That's interesting, Stephen. Thanks for sharing that. 
for for mine, I, I thought I'd share something that is, um, I suppose, maybe interesting, maybe funny, depending on your perspective. But uh, I thought I'd share one of my, my vices with you. Um, I, I tend to be somebody who, who prefers living a, a simple lifestyle, and I'm not too frequently pulled into uh, the the temptation to be materialistic and and hoard stuff uh i like to keep things pretty neat and tidy but uh one of the things i've gotten sucked into recently is collecting uh basketball and, and football cards again did so as a, a child and not um, baseball cards yeah i guess i got some old baseball cards okay. but uh more recently I've been kind of drawn to the other those other two sports mostly basketball and and um you know just uh it's it's one of those things where I, I, I suppose it's essentially like a, like a, a clean form of gambling, right? Because you're you're buying a pack of cards and you just you open it up and it's all about <laughs> trying to trying to win the prize of getting the the most valuable card, the most rare card. And I think it's more uh, like Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, like oh, you're trying to get the golden the golden card, ticket, like the golden ticket. Yeah, yes, like, yes. Like I've yet to pull a card that uh, gives me ownership <laughs> of a of a random candy factory <laughs> or right. plant, you know, anywhere in the world. But right. uh, if that was out there, that that would just make things more difficult. <laughs> so, but it's a uh, yeah. I, I end up um, spending more than I I should and would like to on it, and so I have to I have to discipline myself and set some clear boundaries. But one of the ways that I uh, tell myself that it's okay to keep buying cards is I try to sell cards at the same time. And of course, you have to you sell them on eBay. It's not like you know as a kid where you'd go down to Johnny down the street and try and uh, sell him a card or trade him <laughs> trade up, a card. Upsell him is that kind of yeah yeah precisely. <laughs> But uh, so I try and sell cards on eBay, but, uh, uh, you know, most of the cards that I sell are, are only worth a dollar, you know, at best. So somebody somebody buys a card off of eBay and, um, you know, I have to charge an extra dollar or so for shipping. <laughs> so at the end of the day, uh, I'm, I'm making two bucks, but I'm also giving them a card, paying for shipping and putting you know, probably 20 minutes, half hour into packaging up this card, addressing the envelope, taking it to the post office and, and shipping it out all to make a dollar. Hmm. And, uh, you know, so it's not a lucrative uh, process for me so far. And I don't know if it really justifies my, my card collecting hobby, but I would love to <laughs> learn a better way to, to make money off of them so I can justify continuing to spend money on them. Uh, for the moment, I'm kind of in a bind. So you sell what one card a month? Twelve bucks a year? Is that kind of how? Well, that's uh, right now. That's my that's my goal. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't quite <laughs> achieved that yet. You know, it's it's oh, more difficult yeah. than you would think. Yeah. So yeah. a lot yeah. of people that are buying uh, buying the packs and not so much those individual cards. So right. I'm sure somebody out there is um, really enjoying my my problems because <laughs> yeah. uh, the industry is, I'm sure, making a, a really good off of off of me and so many others. But uh, I think it's kind of interesting. You're probably laughing at me and uh, wondering how your pastor happens to be this pathetic. But, uh, but you know, full disclosure, I want to be real with you all. So that's my fit for the, the week. And uh, I think it's time to get into something a little bit more uplifting and encouraging. Right, Stephen? Right. Yeah. Right. So uh, our first uh, person we're going we're gonna to cover today is uh, Dwight Moody. Dwight Moody, and you may be familiar with the, the Moody name simply from 
uh, Moody Publishing, and uh, I know there are other things that have his name attached to Moody it. Moody Radio. Moody Radio. Uh, Moody Broadcasting. I think mm-hmm. uh, kind of same same uh, concept, different name. But uh, Dwight Moody was um, born in 1837. He and uh, one of the other gentlemen we'll, we'll be covering were born and lived in about the same time period. Uh, mostly influential through the, the middle of the 19th century. Uh, but Dwight Moody was, was born in Massachusetts, so uh, maybe, if, if not the first, one of the first uh, folks that we're covering that was actually born in the United States of America. Um, he was born into a bricklayer's family. His father died when, when he was very young, and so his mother uh, raised nine children on her own. This is a not a <laughs> not a normal situation that we encounter in, in our day and age but uh, un- unfortunately was not uncommon uh, in this time period his mom maybe because she didn't have time um, but uh, the notes indicate she, she never really encouraged Dwight to read the Bible she really didn't push that uh, for him and he only acquired essentially a fifth grade education during his childhood um, but uh, his mother raised him as a single mother along with his eight siblings and uh, when he was 17, he struck out on his own, um, got a job selling shoes in his uncle's store in, in Boston, something he went back to uh, actually several times as a, a shoe salesman. But while he was in Boston, he attended the YMCA there and, and some Sunday school classes, and he actually accepted Christ at the age of 18. Uh, from there, he moved to Chicago. He went back to that uh, shoe salesman gig out in Chicago and uh, even though he had just converted to Christianity, his, his life's uh, goal at the time was to amass a, a fortune. He wanted to get rich. He wanted to be uh, in possession of, at the very least, $100,000 as he has set his sights on reaching that level of wealth. Um, but over time, as he embraced his Christianity, it began to dawn on him that uh, this, is, this is not the be-all, end-all in life and that there are more important things. So he transitioned away from that. And then by uh, 1858, so he's about 21 here, he establishes a, a mission Sunday school in a Chicago slum. Uh, that Sunday school blossomed into a full-fledged church, um, which is uh, still in existence today under a different name. By 1861, so he's in his mid-20s now, he had left his uh, business to focus solely on social and uh, evangelistic work. He drew the, the children of uh, the German and Scandinavian immigration uh, class to his mission, and he enticed them with candy and, and pony rides. So he became a, a, a favorite, a, a beloved person to the, the local children, especially these immigrant families. And he uh, drew the adults in through offering evening prayer meetings and uh, classes to help the immigrant families learn English. His statement was, if you can really make a man believe you love him you have won him so uh, a very pure and and um, well-intended process and and philosophy for uh, drawing people into the presence of Christ he ended up uh, meeting and and marrying one of the Sunday school teachers that worked in his mission her name was Emma Revel and uh, had three children over the course of time with Emma became the president of the Chicago YMCA for for four years Uh, During that time, he was uh, overseeing a process of distributing tracts all over the city, religious tracts. He would uh, hold daily prayer meetings every day at noon 
um, during the Civil War, which was uh, right in the midst of his life, he refused to fight. Um, he said that in that respect, he felt himself aligned with the, the Quakers and that he was a, a pacifist. He refused to fight, but he did uh, put a lot of effort into evangelizing the Union troops. He received financial support for his projects from a number of rich uh, Christian businessmen, and uh, he really tried in, throughout his life to, to blend these concepts of uh, social work, so caring for the needs of people, and evangelism. Uh, you may be familiar, have heard of the, the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, so this is when uh, Moody's in his mid-30s. This fire came through and it destroyed uh, Moody's church, his mission church, his, his home, and the YMCA uh, that he was associated with. So he traveled to New York after this to raise funds to rebuild uh, his church and, and the YMCA. But uh, while he was in New York, he had this experience where he ex uh, felt the presence and, and power of God. And he returned to Chicago, um, having been transformed or having had his, his mission in life, his, his purpose, uh, revised. And he came back solely uh, wanting to focus on evangelizing, evangelizing um, particularly those in his generation in, in a way that would uh, meet them where they were at. So he started to focus solely on that type of work, not so much on the, the social uh, work or, or meeting people's physical needs. Uh, he believed that music would be a valuable tool, so he, he partnered up with a guy named Ira Sankey. Uh, Ira was, was somebody who had sang at uh, a YMCA convention, and um, Moody fell in love with his, his voice and his gifts, and he convinced Sankey to join him uh, on the trail, on the evangelism trail. And in the summer of 1873, uh, they started off uh, on this trail or continued, um, ended up in, in the British Isles and uh, did some work there. He preached two years in, in England um, and then also went on to Scotland and Ireland. And he returned to America as an internationally uh, famous revivalist. And uh, his comment was, I, I know perfectly well that wherever I go and preach, there are many better preachers than I am. All that I can say about it is that the Lord uses me. So he remained uh, humble even when he started to receive some notoriety and some success in his preaching. <clears throat> uh, he called for crusades uh, and, and people to come alongside him in, in uh, launching these crusades. And uh, Moody pioneered in the midst of these many techniques that became common in evangelism circles. Uh, one was a house-to-house -house canvas of, of residents prior to a crusade. And, of course, uh, for, for our generation, when we think of crusades, we're probably uh, keying in on, on Billy Graham, right? Uh, that's been our experience or when we've been exposed to it, uh, that's what we're familiar with. Moody kind of established some of the, the practices that would be implemented in, in Graham's and, and others and some of his own. One was this house-to-house -house canvas, so you go around and, and let people know the crusade is going to happen, uh, and you invite them. There's a, an ecumenical approach uh, to the crusade planning and that you enlist cooperation from all the churches in town. This isn't just a one-denomination thing. Um, you would uh, glean support from the local business community, uh, those who were wealthy enough and couldn't really support, sustain your effort. You would uh, rent out a large central building 
um, to, to house the crusade. You would have a gospel uh, singer that would uh, showcase their talents and really set the mood for what was happening. And then there would be an inquiry room established for those who wanted to come and, and learn more in the midst of the crusade. Uh, they, their, their hearts were, were touched and they wanted to go and talk to somebody and maybe repent of their sins and learn more about the faith. There was a room that they could go to, to, to that was set up specifically for this. Uh, so Moody and, and his buddy Sankey alternated back and forth between Europe and America. They had uh, numerous evangelistic campaigns and uh, had more than 100 million people in total in, in the audience uh, over the course of uh, the time they did this. They used every opportunity they could to, to preach the Word of God. Uh, in 1893, the uh, managers of the, the World's Exhibition in Chicago uh, decided that they wanted the fair to be on Sundays, and so uh, a lot of Christian leaders in the area wanted to boycott it because, boy, they're, they're getting in the way of uh, church, right? Sunday's a sacred set-aside day, but Moody uh, saw it differently. He said, you know, let us, uh, because it's happening on a Sunday, let us open so many preaching places in the midst of the, the world's exi exhibition uh, and present the gospel so attractively that people will uh, experience essentially worship and and uh, receive the gospel on Sunday in uh, the world's exhibition. And so by establishing this or implementing this in a, a single day, over 130,000 people uh, attended these meetings that were part of the world's exhibition where others just wanted to pull out and, and basically boycott it. Um, through his revival work, he saw the need for, for an army of uh, Bible-trained lay people to continue the work of, of evangelism in the in, inner city. His comment on this was, he said, if this world is going to be reached, I'm convinced that it must be done by men and women of average talent. Uh, so it may sound uh, um, degrading, but uh, I, I think I understand his sentiment, and uh, I think his, his heart was in the right place in, in saying this. And particularly in his context. In, in 1879, he uh, transitioned to another um, project of his, and that was establishing seminaries and, and Christian schools. He created one for girls in 1879, two years later, one for boys. Um, he offered summer Bible conferences at his home, uh, right out of his own home. At one conference, the student volunteer movement was founded uh, in the midst of his summer Bible conferences. His movement started a um, hundred uh, college students pledged to work in foreign missions uh, because of their experience at his uh, summer Bible uh, mission. He started the Bible Work Institute of the, the Chicago uh, Evangelization Society. It was renamed Moody Bible Institute uh, shortly after his death, something you may be familiar with. And uh, through this, he launched uh, Moody Press, uh, what would later become known as Moody Press, an, an organization using horse-drawn gospel wagons from which students sold uh, low-cost religious books and, and tracts throughout the nation. So just another creative way uh, to get the Word of God out to the people. So uh, Moody, Moody lived with a, a tireless schedule. He preached six sermons a day uh, throughout much of his life and his, his uh, preaching and teaching career, and all the way up until a month before he died, he was still preaching six sermons a day. Uh, he loved to spend time with his children and his grandchildren. Um, ultimately, he would pass on his uh, own Massachusetts farm, which was where he was born. So uh, what, a, what an incredible uh, life, uh, a mighty impact of uh, just revolutionizing the, the efforts of evangelization and, 
and um, and preaching and uh, just uh, impacting his generation right where he was at, um, using the tools that he had and the resources he, he had in, in, in brilliant ways, and uh, so thus became one of the most impactful Christian leaders of the 19th century. So that's Dwight Moody. Yeah, <clears throat> kind of going off what you said, so much of what Moody has done is still around like moody bible institute moody radio moody press those are really really well known i'm i'm pretty sure that you if you're listening to this you've heard of those before um and i think out of all the people that we've done his he has one of the clearest still you can still see his impact for generations and generations and generations to come right. and, um that's just a that's what it really what it is what's entitled about being a christian leader is building for that next generation and um, him making schools for boys and girls, and it, it's just incredible what he was able to accomplish and do in his in his life. Absolutely. And I thought uh, real quick before we transition to the next, um, maybe Stephen and I could uh, comment on a couple of these quotes I thought that were very representative of, of Moody's character and his beliefs. One was, uh, um, if you can really make a man believe you love him, you have won him. What do you think, Stephen? Is that yeah, true? I mean, completely no, false. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's completely, that's definitely true. I mean, that's, I think the saying goes to, like, no one cares what you know until they know that you care, mm. something like that. Yeah. So it's kind of along the same lines. Um, and I believe that's absolutely true. I think the best way to evangelize and to reach people for Christ is just having a relationship with someone. Um I mean, sometimes people come to Christ by, you know, someone handing them a track or just a stranger speaking to you randomly, and perhaps it aligns with something that's going on in your life. And but I, I think most most of us would say that we uh, have come to Christ or, uh, is is through the relationship of others, um, and you watch their life and you follow their life, and um, and and through that impact is how we come to Christ. Because when we come to Christ, it is through a relationship with Him. Um, and I and I completely agree with uh, what Moody said because also too if you know what's the point of preaching the gospel but never providing for I think James talks about this like mm. when someone comes over and they they say I'm cold I need a coat and you just say well God loves you and you don't give them a right. you don't give right. them what they need it, it, you're not going to reach them so yeah, yeah I think. Uh, I think that is at the very heart of our Christian faith is showing people love uh, before um, and and while we uh, communicate God's love to them verbally. And, uh, you know, it, it, it strikes me as we look at all of these uh, folks throughout history that have impacted the church um, and the Christian world and how short <laughs> life really is and how how uh, difficult it is for one individual to really have a, li- a lasting impact and how rare um, it is for folks to, to have this level of impact. Uh, so I think, you know, most people have an impact in, in either uh, they're, they're showing people God's love through their, their actions. They're maybe over, overseeing a, a missionary society where they're, uh, they're providing people food or clothing or, or uh, medical care or something. Or you have somebody who is uh, a preacher and teacher and is, is uh, you know, communicating verbally um, God's love and, and uh, wisdom to people. I think Moody was, was rare in that uh, his efforts combined the two for a good portion of his life. Uh, and he was able to successfully oversee both of those and make sure that they were both a part of everything that he did and 
and those under him um, implemented as well. So, I, you know, I don't know that somebody who just is a, a preacher or just is um, serving the needs of others is, is any less uh, important or any less impactful. Uh, but Moody was definitely unique in that his uh, his efforts included both, and he was able to, to have a dramatic impact on people in both of those and make sure that they always stayed uh, together. They always uh, they always overlapped each other. The, the telling people God loves you while also showing them God's love in a, a tangible way. Uh, the other quote here, If this world is going to be reached, I'm convinced that it must be done by men and women of average talent. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like what he's saying here is that not... And the talent, I, I guess it goes, also makes me think of the parable of Jesus when he says one person was given one talent of gold, the other person was given two, one was given five, and one decided to bury it. One, It wasn't, what was important wasn't really the amount of gold that they got, but what was important mm-hmm. was what they did with the gold that they had in the parable. Um, and I, and I kind of hear that vibe here with what Moody is saying is that, I feel like here what he's saying is he's really champion people. He's champion people. Um, he's really um, trying to invest in in the lay people. Really, what what really what Protestantism? Did I say that right? Is all about. So it's seeing um, that we're all the priesthood of Christ, men and women, um, and it's not just about the ministers who have the great influence. Who, who? And let's be honest. I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of talented ministers out there. I mean. Paul's on the border. He, he's got some talents too. <laughs> <laughs> the, the bottom border for yeah. sure. Yeah, no, um, definitely but, don't belong. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there's definitely there's there's nothing wrong to say someone is talented at what they do. I mean, I, actually, I would encourage you to to speak up when you see someone who's talented in what they do and say, "Man, you're you're absolutely talented on the saxophone, or you're absolutely talented in your writing, or whatever." I mean, that's that's what we need to hear, and that's what we need to give too. Um, but there's also people who maybe have average talent, you know, with, with pianos or whatever, whatever they do. Um, but that doesn't make them any less important. So I, I think what he's saying here is that he needs, and also too, the, you're going to make a bigger impact when you get everyone involved. And I think mm. that's also what he's saying here. He's like, I'm convinced what must be done is that basically getting everyone involved, average talent, low talent, high talent, whatever. It can't be just me is essentially what he's saying. It's got to be everyone um, so I, I really, I really like the quote a lot. I, I think it um, really speaks to um, how we can have the best kingdom impact. Yeah, I think I, I really honed in on that that last uh, part that you referenced. That, that it's about everybody doing their part. Uh, so often we have a tendency to sit back and you know the the person that seems the most qualified, the most talented. Uh, we sit back and watch them do their thing. We cheer for them while they do it, <laughs> you know, and then, um, and then we go back to doing our own thing. Um, I think that when you brought up the parable of the talents, um, I can't remember what context. So I did just just read that, and it was uh, somebody got one, I think five and ten, and the, right. you know, the 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 people who got five um, bags of gold or whatever it was, and and ten bags of gold both went out and reproduced uh, another five and another 10 and both received the same reward, the same affirmation from the master. Um, even though the one started with more talent and the one less, they both uh, were 
were encouraged and, and were praised for what they accomplished uh, because they, they did what God wanted them to do, or the master in this case, with, with what they were given. And I think that lesson uh, holds true for us, too, that um, you know we, we don't have control over what talent we're born with. Uh, but whatever it is, we're supposed to be using it. So, you know, it's as simple as a mathematical formula. If you got uh, somebody like Moody, who's a one in a million talent, and he can uh, he can reproduce a uh, hundred bags of gold, but everybody he's preaching to can only do one. Well, guess what? You know, all it takes is a hundred people in his audience to do one, and they're they're matching what he's doing. Um, and he's got a lot more than 100 people, <laughs> you know, around him. And so point being, yeah, the, the, each individual uh, is called to uh, serve. So we need people, and it, it's not meant to be degrading, but people of average talent, people who aren't moodies, uh, to, to be able to step, step up and do their part um, if we're really going to impact the world in a, in a meaningful way. We can't just sit back and watch the, the people who seem to be the most talented and cheer for them, you know, from the sidelines. Well, so, and I want to add to this real quickly. Not, we could almost do a whole podcast on this. <laughs> but I think as well is that um, thinking of this, par- thinking of the parable is that even the, the one with 10 and the one with five, um, Christ, essentially God or Christ in the story gave the same response, like, well done, good and faithful servant. Now you may enter into your happiness. Like it was the same response to whether the 10 or the five, it didn't matter how much they had. Mm-hmm. Um, and what also is important to point out too, is that um, we're all gifted at something differently. So there's things that others were gifted in that Moody wasn't gifted. In. Right, like right. Maybe someone was really gifted in, in music and Moody wasn't, but they could use their talents to reach, you know, so it, it just all comes full circle. But yeah, it's a great, great quote. All right, we're going to jump to the next one. Um, Charles Spurgeon, um, born in 1834 and died in 1892. So him and and Moody were contemporaries. Um, so Spurgeon, I, I think many of you probably have heard of Spurgeon. Spurgeon was born in, oh, I'm not going to be able to pronounce this right, Cal, Calvadon, Essex, I believe that's right. Kate. If uh, nobody else knows, just say it with confidence. <laughs> I, yeah, I should have just said it with confidence. He <laughs> um, was born to a family of clerks. So his father and grandfather uh, were nonconformist ministers, meaning they weren't Anglican. Anglican. Is that? Anglican? Like, Anglican. Uh, yeah. Church of England, right. if that helps. Church of England. There you go. <laughs> I'm having a rough time here. Um, and Spur- Spurgeon's earliest moments were. Um, looking at pictures of Pilgrim's Progress and Fox's Book of Martyrs. So um, Spurgeon had an early influence um, into the Christian faith. Um, His formal education was limited, even by the 19th century standards. He attended local schools for a few years, but never earned a university degree. He lived in Cambridge for a time, where he combined the roles of scholar and teaching assistant, and was briefly tutored in Greek. Um, Though he eschewed formal education, all his life, he valued learning in books, and especially those of the Puritan, um, Puritans, written by the Puritans. And his personal library eventually exceeded 12,000 volumes. That is a lot of books. Um, which, the next one, there's another one we're going to talk to who's who had, probably had even more books. Um, at age 15, Spurgeon broke um, with family tradition, became a Baptist. And I know this is 
know we attend a Methodist church, but we do love the Baptists as well. Um, <laughs> thanks for, thanks yeah, for pointing that out. That's, that's important. Yeah. Uh, he attributed this con- uh, this conversion to a sermon he heard by quote unquote by chance when a snowstorm blew him away from his destination into a primitive Methodist chapel. Even though it, it, it's called a Methodist chapel, but he became a Baptist. Um, <laughs> the experience forced Spurgeon to reevaluate his his idea on, among other things, infant baptism. Within four months, he was baptized and joined a Baptist church. Um, his theology, however, remained more or less Calvinist. Um, though he liked to think of himself as mere, quote-unquote, mere Christian, he's quoted saying, um, I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist. And he also said, I do not hesitate to take the name of Baptist, but but if I am asked what is my creed, I reply, it is Jesus Christ. So he, he may have been a Baptist, may be a Calvinist, but he uh, primarily identified as um, one who follows Jesus Christ. Still as a teen, uh, Spurgeon began preaching in rural Cambridge, Cambridgeshire, and he quickly filled the pews in his first pastorate in the village of Waterbeach. Um, he had a boyish appearance that contrasted simply with his the maturity of his sermons. He had a good memory and always spoke um, really well from his outlines that um, that he produced. Um, his energy and oratory skills and harmonious voice earned him such a reputation that within a year and a half, he was invited to preach in London at the historic New Park Street Chapel. A congregation of 232 were so impressed they voted him to preach another six months, and eventually he moved to the city and never left. Um, so even from a young age, we talk about when we talk about Moody and gifts. You know, the gifts of, of Spurgeon was early on. We could see that his gift um, in preaching um, was very, very evident. As word spread of his abilities, he was invited to preach throughout London and the nation. No chapel seemed large enough to hold those who wanted to hear the preaching sensation of London, quote-unquote. He preached um, to tens of thousands in London's greatest halls. Um, And in 1861, his congregation, which kept extending his call, moved to the new Metropolitan Tabernacle, which seated um, 5,500 people. Um, and actually, too, that tabernacle is still there, though a little bit of history about it. The original tabernacle actually, um, I think, burned down, and then they rebuilt it. And then the one they rebuilt got destroyed um, in World War II, um, and they rebuilt it again. <laughs> so it, and each time it's a little different, but it keeps a lot of the same vibe, the same look as the original. But um, a, a, a chapel that sat, that sat 5,600 people's which is a lot even by today's standards, but it's certainly a lot then. Um, Spurgeon preached there at at, uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle from 1861 to 1891. Shortly before his death, his sermons were, um, he he preached there shortly before his death. And throughout his life, his sermons were printed in the London papers weekly. In addition to pastoring the church, Spurgeon also started a pastor's college and an orphanage, which are still in operation today. Spurgeon was um, also wrote prolifically, so his collection of sermons fills 63 volumes, the largest set of books by one author in the history of Christianity. Um, his books and lectures, his book, um, Lectures to My Students, Commentating and Commentaries, 
uh, were the result of works with his students, and both are still on the reading list in modern seminaries. Spurgeon also published The Sword and the Troll? T- stone? Yeah, Sword and the Stone magazine. It's it's T-R-O-W-E-L. I want to... Trowel. Trowel. Yeah. I'm not sure what that means. Maybe it me- if our UK listeners out there, perhaps you... <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it, uh, <laughs> I think it's similar to a shovel, I want to say. Right, yeah. That, yeah. Sword and a I shovel. Think, right. I'm sure you might be right. we can infer something yeah. from that. You maybe. might be right. We'll do a whole podcast on it later. <laughs> it sounds good. Um, <laughs> so give our listeners something to be excited exa- about. <laughs> exactly. We'll, we'll do a podcast on the awkward and weird UK and Australian English words. Something like that. <laughs> sounds like fun. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait. Actually, it will be fun. Um Sermons, or sermons, Spurgeon's sermons <laughs> were powerful and direct, but also contained elements of humor. You know, Spurgeon was a pastor, evangelist, and a careful expository of scripture. His sermons are still popular today and are noted for their combination of eloquence and down-to-earth applications. Um, he has a book called His Treasury of David, an exposition on the Psalms, which I think I've read some of that. Um, is one of his most popular works, as is the devotional Morning and Evening, which I've also I've read some of the Morning and Evening devotional, and it, it is really good. Most of Spurgeon's material is still in print and highly recommended. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was unashamedly uh, Calvinist and Baptist, but he did not shrink from controversy and was very outspoken against false teaching and, hip- and hypocrisy. Um, he attacked both hyper-Calvinism and um, Arminian theology. He he accused evangelical Anglicans of hypocrisy for continuing to use Anglican baptismal service found in the Book of Prayer, even though they did not believe in the baptismal regeneration. Um, during the downgrade controversy, Spurgeon accused fellow Baptists of teaching a modern modernist theology, and he eventually withdrew from the Baptist Union because of the controversy he had with other Baptist ministers within the denomination. Um, Spurgeon died in 1892, and his nearly 40 years of pastoring, it is estimated that he had preached 3,500 sermons to about 10 million people. Um, through his written work, Spurgeon has left a continuing legacy of love for Christ and his word that still influences pastors and laymen today. I would also mention here, too, that um, it's kind of well documented, too, that Spurgeon really suffered a lot through depression um, and, and doubt. Not doubt for his faith, it's just especially depression. Um, I just a little side note. I did a um, a research paper on Spurgeon in on in seminary. Um, fascinating life, but he definitely really dealt with um, major depression, almost kind of clinical depression in a sense. So, um, which I say that in a, in a sense too, because as we speak about these um, these leaders, that we have to remember that they're human, and all of them. Moody, Spurgeon, all the guys we were talking about, um, all the guys we have talked about, they're, they're humans. Um, and a lot of them <laughs> have aspects of their life that that they're, that Christ died for, right? And we're all sinners. Um, and none of these men were perfect by any means. So, mm. but, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't tell you how often I gravitate towards a Spurgeon quote uh, when we're choosing yeah. quotes for for the bulletin each week. Uh, just so much insight in so many different areas. Um, quickly, here's a, here's a quote from Spurgeon I thought would be interesting to react to. Uh, he says, I, I am perhaps vulgar, 
but it is not intentional save that I must and will make the people listen. My firm conviction is that we have had quite enough polite preachers and may require a change. God has owned me among the most degraded and offcasts. Let others serve their class. These are mine, and to them I must keep. What do you think? Yeah, that's... I mean, I know the quote, so something else I didn't mention is that when Spurgeon was preaching, he would preach on really, at the time, really, he would preach on, like, the stories of orphan, like, uh, the kids in the orphanage, or he would preach on a story of, like, maybe a prostitute who got saved. And at the time, these are stories that were just scandalous, and how could you mention that in, mm-hmm. in the church? But what he really was doing was using those dramatic stories as, as a witness to how God Christ can change a life and to be honest the gospels speak about uh, prostitutes and tax collectors and thieves and you know it's the really I, I think to be honest this makes me think about this I think we'd be shocked if we went back in time and looked at the crew or the people that followed Jesus mm-hmm. it, it wouldn't be the matter of fact the religious folk the Pharisees whatever weren't following it the people following Jesus would have been a, a um, like a crew of maybe pirates. <laughs> so you, yep. I just think of like a rough and tumble crew. It's not, it's not this pretty picture that we that we have in our mind. Uh, Ragtag band yeah, of rag- misfits, basically, yeah, exactly. and that's exactly, ex- exactly precisely what he wanted to. Right. Yeah, I think uh, uh, Spurgeon makes a good point here, um, and so much you know packed into what he's trying to say in this quote. But ultimately, this this whole notion of uh, Preachers being too polite uh, to to reach their audience at times and, and to really impact their hearts, I think, is is spot on. I think um, so many people, of course, the people who you know who show up on on Sundays and gravitate towards the the message and want to be fed in that manner, um, you know, they're accustomed to it. You might uh, you might shock them. You might throw them off if you started to. Uh, probe into some more difficult topics or or speak in a different manner and of course you you never want to be vulgar just for the sake of being vulgar or you know or or speak um, in an inappropriate way it's more about just being real I think and meeting people where they're at sometimes that means sharing stories and and talking about subjects um, that uh, that are going to make some people uncomfortable but I think there's uh, some merit to when we preach, when we teach, um, doing so to connect with not just people who are already in the church, um, but so that we're relevant to people who are not yet in the church. So that when we do have a, a chance to to connect with them, um, they, they see something uh, meaningful in what we're saying. So I think uh, that ultimately is what Spurgeon was trying to communicate here. Um, and the only other comment I was going to make, and it's not even specific to Spurgeon, but I feel like everybody we're talking about it at some point in their life uh, we're talking about dealing with major controversy like it's it's not about whether they deal with controversy it's about how they they handled it and what specific uh, realm it, it it resided in and uh, so I just think a quick a quick point observation that if you're going to be an impactful leader uh, in the church or you know somebody who has influence in, in the Christian faith or people around you, 
uh, you're going to encounter controversy. It's it's inevitable. You know, Jesus uh, warned us for that, <laughs> warned us about that when he was here, even in his ministry. He said, the world hates me. They're going to hate you, too, because of me. And, and sometimes it's uh, controversy from within our own uh, ranks, too, that we just can't agree on things. And so we get at each other's throats because of it. So, um, you know, that we need to expect that there's going to be disagreement, expect that people are going to be passionate about it. And it's just a matter of when and how a leader has to confront it, not not if. All right, let's uh, jump into our third individual here. His name is Carl uh, B-A-R-T-H. This <laughs> this. This may be the, the least uh, recognizable name amongst the four and the most most difficult you would think to pronounce, B-A-R-T-H. And, and I had to be reminded when I was researching him that um, the T-H is not pronounced as we would. Um, and it's so easy to try and swap it out for an F because it, it just rolls right <laughs> off the tongue. But, but it's pronounced Bart as in like Bart Simpson, uh, Bart, unless there's another famous Bart out there that I'm not aware of, but no. uh, Carl Bart. Carl Bart <laughs> was um, born in 1886, uh, so we're here uh, at the end of the, the 19th century, so his influence was early in the 20th, and um, he was born in, in Switzerland. He was uh, the son of a professor of New Testament and early church history, so he was the son of a Christian professor. And uh, he studied in his childhood and, and uh, early adulthood in some of the best universities himself. So he really started out in life as a very learned uh, person. He sat under uh, some of the most famous liberals of uh, his day, most of whom taught an optimistic Christianity that focused not so much on, on Jesus and the cross as uh, on the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. So... Um, this was characterized at, at the time as a liberal thought, and uh, these were some of the folks that uh, Bart studied under. And uh, he was appointed at an early age to a working-class parish in, in Switzerland in 1913 now, so he is, uh, that would put him at uh, about uh, 27 years old. Uh, 1913, he, he got married, um, to a violinist, a talented violinist. They, they ended up having five children, um, and he settled into his, his role as pastor in his parish. He, he noted at the time, though, with alarm, that, that Germany, living in Switzerland, of course, he was part of this uh, European theater um, here early as we start to trend towards uh, World War One. Germany was becoming increasingly militaristic, and his uh, former professors were, were supportive of this. Um, Bart was uh, frustrated with the moral weakness that uh, they displayed and of the, the theology that they had embraced. And he plunged as a response into a study of the Bible, uh, trying to figure out where he stood on all of this, especially focused on the book of Romans. And he came away with some incredible conviction of the uh, victorious reality of Christ's resurrection, really was, was what struck him as he read and, and focused primarily on Romans. And uh, this ended up deeply influencing his own theology. So he began writing at an early age. Uh, his uh, commentary on the epistle to the Romans in 1919 uh, sounded off themes that uh, he thought had been silenced and had been ignored by liberal theology of his day. 
And he wrote of uh, what he called a, a crisis, the crisis that was God's jun judgment under which all the world stood and uh, focused on this theme of God's absolute sovereignty. So um, he was uh, recognizing a, a realm of theology or understanding view of God that people of his, his time uh, had at least seemingly pushed under the rug or, or wanted to uh, silence, not think about. Uh, he spoke dialectically. He, he spoke in paradox. He spoke um, to shock his readers into seeing the radical nature of the gospel. Uh, the first of, of six of his heavily uh, revised uh, editions of uh, his next book came out in 1922, and it rocked the theological community. And uh, as he was reflecting on it later, he said, As I look back upon my course, I seem to myself, and this is a neat imagery, I seem to myself as one who, ascending the dark staircase of a church tower, trying to steady himself, reached for the banister, but got hold of the bell rope instead. So uh, his, his book and those that followed really uh, got a, a reaction, got a response from uh, theologians of his day. Uh, liberal theologians gasped in, in horror and attacked Bart uh, furiously for his, his beliefs and his statements. Um, he had given the form of, of liberal theology that he was uh, seeking to confront during his lifetime a, a mortal wound uh, by what he uh, wrote in his uh, texts and what he published. His theology became known as dialectical theology or the, the theology of crisis, uh, relating back once again to this crisis that he, he referred to when he talked about God's judgment over the world and, and uh, helping people recognize the sovereignty of God uh, when they had uh, tended towards ignoring that or wanting to, to push that aside. He was appointed in 1921 as uh, professor of Reformed Theology at, uh, at a, a University of Gotten, Gottingen, and uh, later on moved on to other universities, played similar roles. Um, he published a massive book in 1931 of Church Dogmatics, and uh, it was incomplete even uh, when he published it, but it eventually would, would grow to fill four volumes of, of 12 parts each, uh, printed with 500 to 700 pages in each of these parts. So we're talking whatever 48 times uh, 700 is. That's a, a, lot of, <laughs> that's a lot of pages. Great bathroom read for sure. Yeah, yeah. If you're, <laughs> if you're a frequent bathroom user, you might eventually get through small portions of it but uh, pastors in the uh, 1930s and 40s and 50s they sought out um, his uh, text and uh, used this very often in, in their own preaching and, and their own teaching so it was a very uh, well appreciated text uh, he, he fought uh, though not just against um, the liberals with whom he, he contended in, in theology at, uh, in his time but also uh, allies people who largely agreed with him, but still challenged some of his extreme conclusions. Uh, Emil Bruner is uh, the name of uh, one of those who he, he ended up uh, being confronted by, um, but uh, he, he continued his friendship with him. Uh, by this time, Barth was uh, a mer Barth. I told you I was going to do it. <laughs> you read the TH, Bart, you can't help it. Barth. Thank you. I, I appreciate Jeez. that. Yeah, it's not Barth, Barth either. <laughs> it's not Barth either. That's helpful. Uh, so, so, he was uh, immersed in this growing struggle within the, the German church, right? So because of where he was living, um, 
in, in Switzerland at times and, and uh, also right near and in Germany. Um, but uh, he was the founder of the so-called Confessing Church. And this uh, Confessing Church that he um, originated, it reacted vigorously against this I- ideology that the Nazis at the time were trying to create uh, and, and push forth. And, and uh, they were trying to create essentially a German Christian church that was uh, uniquely based on their own ideologies, uh, an ideology by the name of blood and soil, uh, which I'm sure we can imagine kind of what, uh, what the core of, of that ideology was. The 1934 Barman Declaration, largely written by Bart, pitted the revelation of Jesus Christ against the truth, uh, in quotes, the truth of Hitler and National Socialism. So uh, certainly uh, during the rise of, of Hitler and, and the Nazi regime, uh, Bart was one of uh, probably the very few who was willing to stand up and, and uh, speak against him and, and uh, the philosophies and, and the ideas that were being put out. He refused uh, to take the oath, in fact, of unconditional allegiance ultimately to the Fuhrer, and uh, he was fired from his uh, position in uh, his university. Um, But he was able then, after spending this time in Germany, he was able to go back to Switzerland, where he was offered the chair of theology in his native uh, Basel, Switzerland. And from there, he continued to champion the causes of of his confessing church and of the Jews, in fact, and of oppressed people everywhere. Uh, After the the war was over, after World War II ended, Bart uh, engaged in in controversies uh, continuously regarding uh, issues such as baptism, uh, hermeneutics, which is just uh, interpreting scripture in different ways, and also the the demythologizing program of Rudolf Boltmann, um, Bolt, Boltman, I think. I'm, go, I'm yeah. thinking back to my seminary days of <laughs> how like that name is pronounced. Like Boltman. Boltman. <laughs> um, but uh, Boltman's uh, view was uh, one that denied the historical nature of Scripture, instead believing that it was a, a myth and uh, the meaning of Scripture could heal spiritual anxiety, but it wasn't historically uh, founded. And, and Bart uh, disagreed with this uh, vehemently. So. He stood up against that um, in his time in, in Switzerland now, back in his home country. He made regular visits to the, the local prison. Uh, his sermons were collected uh, that he preached to the prisoners and, and uh, entitled Deliverance to the Captives in, in the book that they were released in. Uh, they reveal his unique combination of uh, evangelical passion and social concern, uh, both of which characterized his entire life. 1962, uh, he made his one and only visit to the United States and, uh, and asked to summarize the essence of uh, the millions of words that he had published throughout his life. His response uh, was, uh, the summary is this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Pretty sure that song was already in existence. Yeah, he yeah. was quoting it, not, <laughs> not writing it. But uh, it tells you what was really um, at the core of who Bart was and, and his heart. Uh, American evangelicals, um, over time and, and since Bart uh, has, has passed, they've been skeptical of, of him and his beliefs at times um, because he considered the written word infallible, uh, believed, um, or they considered the written word infallible, and, and Bart insisted that only Jesus was infallible. Other portions of Scripture that didn't originate from Jesus uh, perhaps contain errors. Um, others disagreed with Bart's uh, theology because 
They thought he overemphasized God's trans transcendence, uh, transcendence, essentially this notion that um, God is kind of outside of humanity's perception and his experience and experience. So I don't think uh, um, Bart believed this entirely, but he believed that God was uh, unique and powerful and, and uh, sovereign enough that there was some uh, disconnect maybe between God and, and humanity. And uh, people disagreed with them. Theologians, uh, theologians who came after him disagreed in, in that respect, too. Um, but uh, even with all of that being said, he still remains, um, in many people's eyes, the most important theologian of the 20th century uh, from anywhere. So uh, what, an, what an impact, um, largely in, in his writings and just his, his school of thought. Uh, but uh, incredible, incredible man was Karl Barth. So uh, quickly... Um, quick question that I'll pose, and then we'll let uh, Stephen bring us home with our last person. Um, what do we learn from Bart about how our context, our location and time in history, um, or or anybody's at any point in time? I'm thinking to his uh, context in in history, unique to the rise of uh, the Nazi regime and such. Um, how can our our context in in history help determine our ability to? influence others and impact the world for Christ. So why does um, where we live and when we live matter uh, with regards to how we can how we can serve Christ and impact the world around us? Any thoughts on that, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, I, it, it makes me think of, uh, which, you know, Mike, is, I really listen to a lot of Timothy Keller because he does a really good job at contextualizing culture and speaking truth to culture. And I kind of feel like that's what Carl did and kind of maybe an answer to your question. I hope this answers your question. But I think it's as Christians, we need to be one aware of our culture and what our culture is telling us, um, but also speaking truth to the culture. Um, and, and that is, can be really, really hard to do because it's going against the grain, being the one that's swimming upstream, being the one that points out um, any sort of Mis misgivings of culture is going to be difficult um, and I think and this goes back to what I think Jesus said and and John that um, none of us like to have our sin come to light um, and and whenever you speak truth to powers truth to culture you're bringing up things that people don't want to come to light but I, I think having a really keen understanding um, of the culture that influences us which can be really hard to do because our culture it's almost like a fish in water doesn't notice the water. We're, we're just swimming in the culture, and it's really mm -hmm. hard to pierce that apart. But having that talent ability um, and really the gift of the Holy Spirit to give us that um, vision to see through it, um, I think we have the responsibility to speak the gospel to people um, in our culture in a way that they can hear it, um, respond to it, and hopefully come to Christ. So Does that answer? It does, yes. Yeah, it's, right. it's very profound and... and um, <laughs> Yeah, I'll share, but I, I'm probably just reiterating uh, the same thing you just said. I, I think that it's our job to speak to uh, the culture. And, and when we speak, when we when we try and speak the truth and, and share the gospel, we're doing it. You, you can't pull yourself outside of time and space. So when we speak, we're doing it from our own uh, perspective, uh, planted within the culture that we live. And when we're trying to communicate it to other people, we're going to speak it uh, within their own, you know, in, in in a way that they can understand. So we have to, we have to bring in cultural references. We have to to speak um, when we're sharing stories, like like Jesus did parables, or or 
uh, cultural references to help people understand these timeless concepts. They have to be planted within a certain time and space. People need to be able to understand them based on their frames of reference. And, and so you can't avoid, nor do we want to avoid bringing culture into it. But if we're going to bring it into it, we also have to be willing to speak truth about our culture. Um, and that is, I think, why each of us are uniquely situated in the certain time and, and place that we are in, in history. God is calling us to use the culture to connect with people, but also um, uh, speak truth about the culture uh, to help people see in a, in a prophetic way um, what what their lives would look like if they if they continued on the, the path that they were on or, or uh, the dangers of the world around us and, and our need to rise above. I mean, it, absolutely. And, and Bart did that in his context. Um, you know, I think each of us do that. And, and the guy we're about to talk about uh, did that in a unique way as well in a similar uh, time as, as Bart did. And um, I think each of us are called to do the same thing. So uh, it goes back to the fact that we're always going to be dealing with controversy. We're, we're always going to have people that disagree with us because we are always going to have to, in some way or shape or form, speak out against um, the, the concepts and the things that we see happening around us. And some people aren't going to agree with that. They're not going to appreciate that. So I think that's, uh, I think it's key. But And I, uh, and I think it's to speaking truth and love. Having right. Sometimes you can harp on truth and... It's not very loving, and, and I think in that point the truth is lost. We don't, we don't. It doesn't reach anyone. Kind of going back to what your quote earlier um, with Moody, I believe. Yeah, to once you convince somebody that um, you love them, and right. then you've actually captured them and, right. and have a chance to influence them. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right, we'll start on the last. Uh, the last guy here is C.S. Lewis, um, who I know. I can almost guarantee that you've, those listening have heard of this, have heard of C.S. Lewis. He was born in 1898 and died in 1963. Um, so kind of 1960, that feels kind of recent, um, even though I wasn't alive there, but, you know. <laughs> uh, C.S. Lewis, better, um, well, his first name was Cal- C-L-I-V-E, Kelvin? Clive's. Clive? Clive's. Clive Staples Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> Better known as C.S. Lewis. Yes. <laughs> which is probably why. He, That's what we'll refer to he him went, as. He went, it's probably why he would. I see why he goes by C.S. Lewis now. <laughs> I um, like even the, saying the word Clive's right, is, a, Clive. is difficult, even just once. Yeah. Right. I've never heard of that before. Um, he was an Irish author um, and an Oxford and Cambridge literature professor known for his popular writings. Um, Lewis was born into a bookish family, so we um, previously talked about how Spurgeon was born into a, or how he loved books, but Lewis takes it to a whole nother level. So Lewis was born into a bookish family of Protestants in Belfast, Ireland. Um, reading was everywhere. They purchased books. They had endless books everywhere. He's quoted, this is C.S. Lewis, he's quoted saying, um, there were books in the study, books in the dining room, books in the cloakroom, books... <laughs> Books too deep in the bookcases and on the landing, books in the bedroom, books piled as high as my shoulder, in the cistern attic, books of all kinds. <laughs> so that's a quote from Lewis. Uh, Lewis remembers all these books, and none of them are off limits to him. So on rainy days, which there are a lot of rainy days in Northern Ireland, he pulled volumes off the shelf and entered into the world created by authors such as um, Col- uh, Cohen Dolan, uh, the author of... Uh, 
What's Sherlock. The, Sherlock, there you yeah. go. Thank you. Uh, e. Nesbitt, Mark Twain, Harry uh, Henry Wadsworth, Longfellow. Um, just tons of different authors. So after his brother Warren was sent off to English boarding school in 1905, um, the, so C.S. Lewis also went by the name Jack, so if you've heard that before. but um, <laughs> Once again, I can yeah. very, very much understand <laughs> right. why he might have done um, C.S. Lewis, or Jack, became somewhat reclusive, and he spent more time in books and imaginary, in an imaginary world of dressed animals and knights in armor, but uh, he did more than – he did – read a lot of books but see what he also wrote and illustrated so um you can see he sees lewis the author of chronicles of narnia you can see where he gets the influence from all the books and reading that he did growing up his mother's death from cancer in 1908 made him even more withdrawn uh, miss lewis's death came just three months before his 10th birthday and the young man um, he was hurt deeply by her passing and not only did he lose a mother his father never really fully recovered from her death. Um, both boys felt estranged from their father, and home life was never um, warm and satisfying again. It, it never reached the point where it was with his mother. Um, his death of his mother really influenced him a lot, um, and that it actually is what led him um, eventually to atheism, became an atheist, um, just because of death, dealing with the death of his mother, he rejected Christianity um, because of that. Um, so as he was growing up, um, he was an atheist, uh, but he continued to run into friends and people and authors that were Christians. So um, Mr. McDonald and Charleston, who were his friends, were stirring Lewis's thoughts. Another close friend, Owen Bel Belford, um, pounced on the logic of Lewis's atheism, so kind of attacking Lewis's atheism, and I'm sure in a friendly, loving, kind manner. <laughs> Belford had convinced them, um, he, Belford, Belford um, had converted from atheism to theism and to finally to Christianity, so he would frequently talk to Lewis about his atheism, his materialism, um, because he had been that before. Um, so Lewis would continue to run into friends who would influence his his um, his belief. Soon after, he became um, went to Magdalen College as in the work in the English um, English faculty. Lewis met two more Christians, Hugh Hugh Dawson, um, and then the other one that we you may have heard before is J.R.R. Tolkien. So he met J.R.R. Tolkien in the English um, faculty. Um, these men became close friends with Lewis, and he admired their brilliance and their logic. And soon, Lewis recognized most of his friends, like his even his favorite authors, um, were all Christians. <laughs> so in 1929, um, these roads met, and C.S. Lewis surrendered, um, and he's quoted saying, God was God, and he knelt and prayed. And within two years, he became a reluctant, became converted into Christianity and joined the Church of England. So... Um, from he was an atheist from 1911 to 1929, so so for some time. Um, in terms of impact, C.S. Lewis is often described as one of the greatest Christian apologists uh, of the 20th century. An apologist or apologist is uh, a defender of the Christian faith, or really could be a defender of anything, but really it's used in defender of the Christian faith. Um, the great strength of his writings is in connecting spiritual ideas to everyday experiences. Lewis, uh, Lewis's approach to, to, to defending the faith is simple and direct, yet profound. 
rather than grappling with convoluted, convoluted. Oh man, I cannot say that. Um, rather than grappling with really difficult philosophies, what I'm trying to say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> his writings explain Christianity in terms that are easily understood by everyone. For Lewis's faith, uh, for Lewis, faith in Christ wasn't something irrational. It wasn't some irrational leap into the dark. Um, it was instead something that faith was a submission to common sense, um, an acknowledgement of everything, um, acknowledgement of everything daily life already has to tell us. So he didn't see faith as this uh, walk into the darkness, a leap into the darkness, but he saw faith as coinciding with our everyday lives. Um, Lewis wrote many, 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 many books. Um, some of the mo- most well-known ones, The Screwtape Letters in 1942, Mere Christianity in 1952, Chronicles of Narnia in 1950 to 1956, The Great Divorce in 1946, The Abolition of Man 1943, um, so he wrote many, many books. Um, he also uh, he also always considered himself a scholar. So he would write. Um, he wrote literary history and criticisms and the allegory of love and um, English literature in the 16th century. He wrote that book. So he he saw himself as a Christian apologist, but also as an English scholar, um, and which is also amazing. And despite all his intellectual accomplishments, he refused to be arrogant about it. Um, he, he's quoted saying that the intelligent life is not the only road to God, nor the safest, but we can find it to be a road. It may be appointed an appointed road for us. Of course, it will be so only so as long as we keep the impulse pure and dis, um, keep the interest pure. So he's, he, he sees that the road that he took, the intellectual road, is not the only road to understanding God, but it's the road that God led him on. Um, now, also, he started to get a lot of money from all the books and the writing, but he um, was constantly giving that money away, a charitable fund for his royalty earnings um, to help impoverished families. He underwrote education fees for orphans and poor um, poor people in the seminaries, and um, so a lot of money he, he donated. Um, he eventually did fall in love late in life. Um, I think he was in his 50s, 57 or 59, I believe. Um, and the person that he eventually married was 16 years younger than him. Um, but she actually ended up dying of cancer. Um, they were only married for four years, so it wasn't very long. Um, and this also, this her death dramatically influenced Lewis a lot. Um, he ended up writing the book, um, A Grief a Grief Observed, um, and because of um, her death. So her death and his mother's death had just really influenced him a lot. Um, Lewis eventually died not actually too much long after the death of his wife. Granted, he was 16 years older. Um, so November 22nd, 1963. And if you're a history buff out there, November 22nd, 1963 was also the day that uh, John F. K. Or, yeah, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. So um, they both died on the same day. Um, but C.S. Lewis, um, his influence continues to this day. Um, very much so. Um, you hear him quoted very often on pulpits and books, and I mean, he's one of the probably the most quoted Christian philosopher or apologist out there. Um, and they're and they're great quotes. I mean, I <laughs> I quoted him a lot too. So uh, this very and I've read the Chronicles and Arty's fa- fantastic book, uh, one of my top favorite fantasy novels. And yeah, 
great influence for C.S. Lewis. Yeah, I, well, certainly of anybody we've talked about, uh, my life personally is has been influenced by Lewis more than any of the others by far, by yeah. by uh, far for sure. Um, a few comments or quick quick question maybe, but um, first of all, one of the things that struck me is his his uh, his atheism. And uh, in addition to struggling with materialism, the loss of his mother early on, I almost feel like that uh, kind of set him up for um, the ability to connect with people and understand his, his audience, people he was trying to reach better because of those life experiences. So I think, I don't know that he's necessarily unique in those. You know, most of our uh, folks that we've talked about have had unique life experiences that, that influence their uh, ministry and their ability to reach people, but Lewis definitely uh, really seemed to lean on those. Uh, maybe his own, his own. Uh, I, I can see in some of his books, his, his, thinking back to his own philosophies, his thoughts when he was an athe- atheist, and really addressing his own previous arguments um, through his books. So he he had that experience of knowing uh, what it felt like to be a member of his audience, those he was trying to reach. And his life experiences of, of dealing with grief and temptation, all those things, I think, definitely contributed. And, uh, you know, something about C.S. Lewis and, and his writings, and I was trying to pinpoint it, Stephen, maybe you have thoughts too, but like that, that make them, I think, so much more relatable to the masses. And obviously the fact that he writes fantasy and it's got some sci-fi <laughs> novels in the mix and um, certainly those are, are more relatable to the average person, but even picking up a, a book like, uh, you know, like Mere Christianity or, um, you know, the Screwtape Letters, or, there's just, uh, he has such a, a very relatable, uh, he pulls in uh, metaphor and imagery and, and uh, just has a way of writing that um, I think just connects with the average person in a way that, that few other, um, even ones we've talked about today, you know, writers and Christian leaders have been able to do. Any insight on that? Yeah, no, I, everything you said I agree with. He, it's, yeah, it's hard to pinpoint it. He, his writings just somehow just attuned so well, even though they were written in the early 20th century, they're still, I mean, they still speak to our day and age, like, like if he wrote it today. Um, and, and again, it goes back to the timelessness of Christianity. And I also use C.S. Lewis as a point when I'm talking to students um, and I speak about the Christian faith. I said it's it can be as complex or as simple. So it's, it can be as simple as we believe the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and we walk with him. But it can also be as complex as understanding the deepness of that faith, the deepness of Christ's love and what Christ's love means in our everyday lives and our thoughts and our and our and our emotions and our actions and C.S. Lewis delved into the deepest crevices of but but not in a way that you can't understand it, it, it right. in a way that it's still approachable and readable and you're just like taken aback and and I think I think it is just very true how he makes the Christian faith out to be not something that's otherworldly but something that really fits into our world like a perfect jigsaw piece right so yeah yeah it, it, christianity isn't some fantasy thing it's it's something that's really fits into our reality of mm-hmm. daily life 
Yeah, I think, uh, you know, one, there's so many good quotes out there, but uh, one, and, and I'm, I'm going to butcher it uh, <laughs> if you're expecting it word for word, but something to the effect of, uh, you know, uh, um, a person in a, you know, sitting in a church is, is uh, no more a, a Christian than a dog becomes a car because you, you know, you take it into a garage, like, you know, point being, and once again, I, I totally butchered it, but the, <laughs> the idea, <laughs> but the, the concept behind it is so simple, yet he's addressing something so profound. Like mm-hmm. we, we're not uh, made Christian just because we sit in church any more than, you know, a, a, a oh, uh, measuring spoon becomes a car because you place it in a garage. Oh, like, I got it. You know, but he had this this ability to connect with his audience and this this wit and this creativity and just down to earth uh, language that that he could relay these concepts, these very deep concepts. Uh, Problem of pain is is one of my favorite C.S. Lewis books, and it is it is so deep that you, you do have to one of those where you got to read every sentence twice. But but he's unpacking such incredible concepts that that I never encountered anywhere else uh, from any other other author and and uh, doing it in a way that uh, just it all ultimately makes sense. It all registers. Um, so, you know, I guess is a, enough of a sales pitch, but uh, if you haven't read any C.S. Lewis books, um, can't recommend them enough. And uh, I think this is, a, this is a wrap. How do you feel? We yeah. covered everybody sufficiently. Yep. Yeah, I think it was good. Okay. Yeah. So um, thank you all for listening, and um, hopefully you tune in again for our next one. And, uh, um, and hopefully as, as we're doing this, there's a winter storm approaching. So uh, we're going to just pray that we get home safely. <laughs> and if you hear another podcast, you know that we, we survived. So uh, again, thank you all for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon.